Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on March 14, 2019, Maximizing Your FDII Sense, the proposed Section 250 regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo, a partner in PwC's International Tax Services Group, Nini Dewar, a principal in the International Tax Services Group, Olia Stuber, a partner in the International Tax Services Group, and Kartike Singh, a principal in PwC's Transfer Pricing Group. This excerpt consists of an overview of the new FDII regulations, including the mechanics of the Section 250 deduction and a discussion of the Section 482 impact and computational issues. Have a listen. So I am going to just kick this off with an overview. Um, We are going to look at two things, sales and services. When you look at the FDII regs, you can break it into different things. You've got sales, you've got IP, which is licensing, but it falls under the sales rules. And then you've got the services rules. So you've got the three buckets of sales of widgets, you've got IP licensing, and you've got services. On the screen here, we have this other term called FDDEI. That's foreign derived deduction eligible income, mouthful. I'm going to refer to it as FIDE. You guys can refer to it however you want to do, but if you can get the F-D-D-D-E-I out, you can get it out, or if you want to, you want to go ahead. You're going to hear that throughout the program today. There are a lot of letters. It's, it's the alphabet soup here that we're going to be working through, so we'll do the best we can. Um, F-D-I-I is the term, but it's also referred to as FIDE, FIDE, and then we're going to have some other some other cute names for things too. So moving into our our first part of the proposed regulations, I'm gonna turn this over to Olya and she's gonna take us through some of the background on, on what we recently saw in the regulations. Yes, just to remind us what Section 250 is and FDII, right? Section 250 is a new section that was added to the code uh, by the Tax Reform Act. And what it does, it provides domestic corporations and certain corporations like RICs and RITs and S corporations are excluded from that definition for this purpose. So domestic corporations are allowed uh, deduction equal to 37.5% of uh, foreign-derived intangible income, or FDII, plus 50% of global intangible low-tax income, which we know is guilty, and the related Section 78 amounts. Um, there is a limitation of the deduction on the based on the taxable income. Um, and just from a policy perspective, right, we all heard that these two sort of uh, regimes for FDII and guilty are intended to work together. Uh, the rates for the deductions are going to be reduced or set to be reduced in taxable years after 2025. The deduction for FDI will be at 21.875% and deduction for guilty will be at 37.5%. The proposed regulations under 250 deductions were released this month, March 4th, and they were published in the Federal Register on March 6th. While they address the 250 deduction that applies to both FDII and guilty, there's probably only certain provisions in the regulations that impact the guilty calculation of 250 deduction. Most of the rules that are included in this regulatory package deal with FDII and specifically, right, what transactions qualify for FDII, how you compute FDII and the deduction, so a lot of calculation issues, and then the big portion of this uh, regulatory package is the documentation requirement that we will address. 
So one, one quick thing as I'm turning to the next slide is um, we had the, a really important piece with respect to guilty and just to get out of the way, and that was a 962 election for individuals, but we didn't get that for FDII. So back to your point about it, you need to have a corporation, yeah. you need to have a corporation. Okay, so continuing. Yeah, so for the, um, the applicability of the, of the regulations right now, the proposed regulations are prospective. They are applicable to taxable years ending on or after March 6, 2019, the date of the publication in the, in the Federal Register. The, the unclarity comes from uh, the rule that is um, included in Section 7805B2 that generally allows regulations that are filed or issued within 18 months of the date of the statute uh, to be um, uh, retroactive to the date of the enactment of the statute. So the, for the TCGA uh, uh, you know, statutes like Section 250, the 18-month um, the period expires on June 22, 2019. It is not clear whether these proposed regulations will be finalized by that date and so could be retroactive. So right now we're expecting the the regulations, when they're finalized, will be on a prospective or likely will be on a prospective basis, including the uh, documentation requirements. The uh, taxpayers can elect to uh, apply the proposed regulations for um, earlier taxable years um, with sort of a reasonable documentation requirement approach because Treasury realizes that a lot of those transactions already happened. Taxpayers may not be able to comply with the documentation requirements that are set out in the proposed regulation. So a reasonable approach based on what is already maintained in the ordinary course of business will be allowed. Nini, we've seen a lot of flowcharts and steps throughout all of tax reform. Here's another one of a five-step process that you can take through um, the interaction of 163J and all the other provisions of 250. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. So as all you mentioned, the, the Section 250 deduction is subject to taxable income limitation, and that's really taxable income determined without regard to the, the Section 250. And, and the code doesn't really define taxable income, and we know that um, there are a number of other code sections that uh, provide limitation on the deduction in calculating taxable income, including notably the the with interest expense under 163J and the NOL deduction um, under Section 172. So um, the, the proposed regs basically provide a five-step ordering process to calculate uh, Section 250 deduction and, and the interaction that the, the, the rules will have with the calculation of the 163J and 172 deduction. So these five steps include uh, the first step being uh, a calculation of what is called tentative Section 250 deduction. And, and by that, it just means that the calculation is done without regard to the, the deduction, the limitation under Section 163J or 172 or the taxable income limitation under 250 itself. So uh, simplistically, think about it as the 50% deduction for guilty and 37.5% deduction for FDII that Oyo mentioned. That goes into the tentative section 250 deduction. Then in step two, uh, you get to calculate 163J limitation, and that calculation is determined taking into account the tentative section 250 deduction. So the adjusted taxable income that is used to calculate the 30% limitation uh, for, for the interest deduction 
will take into account the tentative Section 250 deduction. This effectively means that um, that the adjusted taxable income is probably going to be lower than, you know, in the case where your actual Section 250 limita- uh, deduction would be limited because this comes into step two where you only take the tentative to sec- Section 250 deduction into account. Then in step three, the, the NOL um, deduction under Section 172 is calculated, and that is taking into account the this 163J deduction already but without um, taking into account the, the 250 uh, provision. So here, essentially, if you are limited uh, in step two to an amount for 163J purposes, that's the amount that you take into account in the taxable income calculation for purposes of determining the amount of the NOL deduction you will get under Section 172. After you're done with uh, 163J and NOL and in step two and three, then you get to step four, which is to calculate your FDII. And that, uh, that will take into account the deduction allowed under 163J and 172. And then finally, in step five, you calculate the actual Section 250 deduction, which is supplied taking into account the the deduction allowed under 163J as well as the NOL to get to to your final Section 250 deduction. Um, so a lot of um, a lot of calculation uh, that that we will have to do uh, in in coming up with what is the benefit that you're going to get from the, the FDII provision. And without getting into a lot of details like or showing sort of a formula here, it's very very mechanical in the sense that uh, you start with the deemed intangible income, which uh, it, consistent with the guilty uh, provision, it's 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 a deemed amount in the sense that the the, the tangible uh, income is is determined as ten percent of Q by. So that's your first um, first factor in the in the formula, which is the deemed intangible income or DII, and an FDII is a function of DII multiplied by what we call the, the foreign-derived ratio or the foreign-derived dedu- foreign deduction eligible income over deduction eligible income or what Mike would call FIDE over say, day. Kudos for getting all that out. <laughs> you did really well. And, and so when you think about um, the, the formula of all of this, when you think about what factors would increased uh, the, the FDII and, and the benefit that you will get is you, you, if the FDDEI is higher, so essentially the, the income that is eligible is higher, or your DII is higher, which means that if your QBI is lower, then your DII or d- d- deemed intangible income will be higher. Those, those things will increase the, the FDII result. And the, the proposed regulations actually spend a lot of time Talking about what transactions qualify under, you know, SFDDEI, and and uh, to to Oya's point earlier, you know, the documentation that will be required for each one. Carter K, I wanted to ask you a question about forty two. Um, I used I used to work for someone in the in the government when I was in the government who saw forty two and everything that that we did, um, even if it wasn't anything to do with forty two. It seemed like forty two naturally fits in here, but how does it fit? 
Yeah, I'm, I don't know if that uh, that reference to that individual was a was a veiled barb at me, uh, but no, I no, tend no, to see 482 veil, everywhere as well. Veiled barb at uh, Steve Matcher. Yes. <laughs> But uh, no, I think uh, the answer to your question, I think uh, 482 interacts and transfer pricing in general and the arm's length principle in general interacts with FDII in a number of ways. Um, so, so first and foremost, you know, a lot of the transactions, uh, whether it's, um, you know, services being provided to an overseas entity, whether it's uh, IP being licensed or so sold or whether it's the sale of property, those are going to be related party transactions. And th those are going to be, um, you know, assuming certain eligibility criteria that we're going to talk about are met, they're going to feed into the FDII benefit. And the pricing of those transactions are going to generate and have an impact on the FDII benefit. But I think that was, that was uh, expected and unsurprising. What is a little bit unexpected, uh, at least to me, is there are 482 principles that become relevant um, in, in the application of a lot of these provisions and in uh, you know, the, the, the determination of, for example, FDDEI services and so on and so forth that apply even to unrelated party transactions. So those concepts, 482 concepts and 482 type analyses will have a much wider bearing on how these, um, you know, how in different elements of the application of these provisions. Very helpful. So we don't get a free pass on 482. It's still around, but it's, it's, it's not overtaking what we're doing here. We're still back to a very mechanical uh, calculation of, of our benefits, but there are other transactions that are feeding into things. There are other transactions where uh, they're going to have a bearing, very, like, like I said, either directly 482 principles or 482 type analyses. Right. Okay, so moving on. Yeah, oh, Mike, yeah. We, we wanted to finish right on the computational yeah. uh, questions and the formula. So the in another part of the calculation itself is not just the gross receipts from the eligible transactions, but also then the expense, right? Because the both the DEI and FDDI streams in that formula are actually net of expenses for property sale of property that is either manufactured or uh, purchased for resale, uh, even to get to a gross income, right, you need to allocate or determine what is the cost of goods sold related to that property. The regulations provide that taxpayers can use any reasonable method for attribution of cost of goods sold to gross receipts, you know, for gross DEI and FDDDI. Um, I'm getting through the, the abbreviations. Uh, the, um, the, the one item, right, we all know that cost of goods sold may include uh, costs that relate to activities that could have occurred in the earlier years, um, even in the years prior to the enactment of 250 deduction. The regulations specify that you cannot exclude those costs, right? Those costs should be fully loaded in the cost of goods sold. On the um, other deductions, uh, the statute itself establishes that the, to determine the deductions that they need to be properly allocable to DEI and uh, FDDDI. And when we first all started uh, thinking about FDII and running the calculations, the, the rules that we generally would look at is just the rules for expense allocation apportionment under Section 861 because they're familiar to us. We use them for foreign tax credit purposes, for 199 uh, DMD deduction calculations, and proposed regulations confirm that approach. 
uh, by uh, choosing the, you know, adding Section 250B as an operative section uh, for expense allocation and apportionment rules. In a, in a few of the 861 regs, the 1861-8 through 14, right, and those are interest expense apportionment and other expenses, and then 861-17 for R&D. There are a couple modification or a little bit of changes to the application of those rules. Um, you may know for um, R&D expense apportionment, uh, there are two methods, sales and gross income methods, and for both of them, taxpayers, if we meet all the exception um, requirements, right, we can use exclusive apportionment. So if I'm using a sales method of R&D um, expense apportionment, I'm allowed to uh, apportion 50% of my uh, R&D expense first to U.S. domestic income. So that exclusive apportionment mechanism is turned off for purposes of um, FDII computations. Another element that is actually consistently confirmed in the proposed FTC regulations and the 250 proposed regulations that for purposes of DF for FDII calculations, Section 250 deduction is not going to give rise to exempt income or asset just because it would be a very circular calculation. So those are the methods that we use. The um, regulations divide sort of your income into three statutory groupings for purposes of that calculation. It's gross FDDDI, gross non-FDDI, so basically what comprises your DEI amounts. And then the residual grouping is the really items that are excluded from DEI, like um, uh, guilty and subpart F and branch income and others. The last point I was just going to make is um, on the losses. So there could be individual transactions that could result in a loss just because of the cost of goods sold or the expense allocation apportionment. And taxpayers are not permitted to exclude those losses from the calculation. So those losses will be kind of computed in your aggregate total and will be reducing your ultimately probably the benefits. The last piece in the calculation is the QBI. Uh, as Nini mentioned, right, QBI reduces the intangible return, and it's generally the higher your QBI is, the lesser um, of FDII benefits you're going to get. Uh, the proposed regulations for 250 confirm that the calculation of QBI for FDII and guilty are done under similar methods. We use alternative depreciation system. Uh, we determine basis on, on a quarterly average. So there, there are really no, no, no new sort of provisions in, in these regulations with respect to the calculation of QBI. Um, the proposed regs introduced um, an anti-abuse rule to prevent taxpayers from artificially reducing their QBI balance. So if you think about a domestic corporation that could transfer its sort of underlying property, tangible property, to a related corporation that is not part of a consolidated group, and then lease uh, this property back to continue using it in business. So in that uh, respect, um, the proposed regulations would apply the anti-abuse rule to such transfer to a related party, and they provide a specific timing framework that if that such transfer occurs within a two-year period, that which begins one year before the transfer, and the, if that within that period the domestic corporation leases the same or substantially same property uh, back from the related party with a principal purpose of reducing its QBI, the anti-abuse rule would apply and basically just disregard the transfer. There are per se um, uh, related party transactions that occur effectively when a transfer in the lease occurs within a six-month period. You treat it as per se entering into a transaction with a principal purpose of reducing your QBI. Generally, the anti-abuse rule um, only applies to related party transfers unless, uh, sorry, to, yeah, to related party will not 
uh, apply to unrelated party transfers unless that unrelated party transfer could be viewed as a structured arrangement. And there are a specific um, kind of non-exclusive list of facts and circumstances listed in the proposed regulations that um, would tell that a structured arrangement is entered with a principal purpose of reducing QBI and therefore the anti-abuse rule would apply. No resistance on no resistance. calling it QBI. You, you didn't even try to say QBAI. No, QBI. We'll get I, think there on <laughs> I think it's a guilty uh, I have faith. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you. Mm -hmm.